So I'm going to recap the last point that we finished off with on Thursday, which was with the question that's not asked explicitly in the minor, but that is answered, which is now that we understand that the king is in the field, that the king is accessible, that Hashem is near to us in Elul, and it's up to us to approach him. But once we approach Hashem, he is approachable, he is near. Um, then the question becomes, okay, so where is Hashem, right? Where is Hashem in Elul? Where, what does it mean that Hashem is in the field? Where specifically in the field? Remember, we asked that question. So there's a story that's told. Do you guys know the gem videos? Are you familiar with him? Yeah. So there's a video where they interviewed this guy who lives in LA. He's a movie producer. And he grew up religious. And when he was a teenager, he left Judaism. And he started to like, try you know, explore and, and, and you know, get a lot of questions he wanted answered in the 60s. He got involved in a bunch of uh, rubbish. And uh, he happened to be in New York one time. And his, somebody he knew told him, you're looking for answers. You have all these questions. Go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So he didn't know like, what the protocol was. So he just kind of waited for the Rebbe to leave 770 one day. And jumped in front of the Rebbe and said, who is God in Yiddish, which means, where is God? And Hashem said, and Hashem said, and the Rebbe said, Ubudu, he's everywhere. He said, no, but where is Hashem? He said, Hashem is, the Rebbe answered, Hashem is in every place. And he started to cry. And he said, no, but where is God? And the Rebbe said, if you're asking like that, and he pointed to the man and he said, then you need to look inside yourself. So the Melech Basada, the, the whole idea that the king is in the field, that there's these tremendous revelations occurring in Elul that we don't feel, that we can't experience initially, but that takes effort for us to tap into. Where are we tapping into? Where are we going? We're going within ourselves, right? We can only um, truly know Hashem by truly getting to know who we are. We're not going to find Hashem outside of ourselves. Um, and in general, just the, the initial answer of the Rebbe is also very, very telling, and it's a very good introduction for when we're going to get into the Esther Spheres, the answer that Hashem is everywhere, right? Because once we start to learn the Ten Spheres and we start to learn, um, you know, all of the Kabbalistic terms that Hasidus borrows and uses to make the points of Hasidus, we're going to be learning that Hashem is here, and there's this level of Hashem, and Hashem is here, and He's higher, and He's lower, and we're going to be learning all these aspects of Hashem, and it's very important not to forget the basic true answer that where is Hashem? Everywhere. Hashem is everywhere. Um, there, was a, there was a conservative politician who went to interview the Rebbe once. And she came out and said, she wrote a whole like, publication afterwards about it. And she wrote that, that the Rebbe was knowledgeable on every topic that she mentioned. If it was medicine, if it was politics, if it was agriculture. The Rebbe like, knew, she was blown away. But she said the moment she would speak about God, the Rebbe sounded like a child. Rebbe sound like a child, and that's very important, that we don't forget that when we speak about Hashem, when we speak about all these levels that we're going to get into, and we're going to have a little bit of an overview now of the 10 Sfirot, when we, even when we speak about the 13 attributes of mercy and these levels and the higher and the lower, and Hashem is near and Hashem is far, what's the truth? That the only thing we truly know about Hashem is that we don't know anything about Him, right? That He's above us, which is why... That people use all different names for Hashem and different sects of Judaism like have their like name that they use for Hashem and Chabad when they refer to Hashem they refer to Hashem as the Eibishter have you heard this term? the Eibishter the Eibishter it's Yiddish and it means the one above because that's basically all we know about Hashem at the end of the day sure could Shabrichel we could say you know Hashem's holy and, and his name is blessed and all these different names we can refer to Hashem but at the end of the day all we really know about Hashem is that he's above us and he's above everything that we can ever learn. Any, any level we ever learn about, 
Hashem's above that. And then when you, when you think about Hashem's above that level, no, he's above that level too. Okay, so, but back to just, back to just finishing this point and, uh, uh, that, we, that we mentioned on Thursday, when we say that the king is in the field, where is Hashem? Hashem is everywhere. Okay, Hashem is always everywhere. Where is Hashem? Where, where do we approach Hashem in Elul? Where do we have to look for him? What does it mean for the farmers to go out into the field that we need to take a look at ourselves? And we explained why. We said because we have a neshama. We have a soul. And our soul is also made up of all different levels and fancy parts and higher and lower, that like, like we're going to discuss with Hashem. But there is an essence, right? There's the essence of the soul, which is called the yichida, the, the unified point. And that place that exists within our soul is infinite. And it is an extension of Hashem, right? We discussed the difference between a creation and an extension of Hashem. It's an extension of Hashem. It's radiating and shining the light of Hashem. It doesn't have a separate existence on its own. And so when we can tap into that level of ourselves, we can tap into that level of Hashem. We can unite with Hashem. We can get closer, so to speak, to Hashem. Good morning. And when we do that, when we do that, Hashem is going to help us in Elul. When we do that throughout the rest of the year, we, we work, we work, we work, we work, we work. We get some gifts sometimes, right? Sometimes we get help. But usually we're working, we're working. Now in Elo, the king is in the field. So when we do make that effort, Hashem takes our teshuvah, he takes our efforts, and he raises them up to a level we never could have taken to them to on our own. Um, which leads us to the last point I wanted to finish off with, with the king in the field, before we move on to chapter two and the sefirot, which is why is Elo set up this way, right? We asked this question a few times. Um, why specifically do we have a king in the field in Elul? Why does our preparation for Rosh Hashanah, why, does, why do we need to have a time in the year specifically where Hashem is actually hiding from us in a way, where Hashem is not hiding, but he's dressed in simple clothing, he's not revealing himself in his full glory, and we have to go and search for him. We have to seek him out. We have to do the, the avod of what's called anila dodi, a sarusa de sata, the awakening, the arousal from below. We have to initiate our relationship with Hashem from our own efforts without any help. What do you guys think? Why is that necessary? Why do we have like a specific time in the year set aside for this? You have to initiate like from why, why is it important for us to initiate? If Hashem cares so much to be close to us, why doesn't he just come close? Why doesn't he just reveal himself so it's automatic? Of course I'm going to get close to the king. He's the king. He looks like the king. It's, all, it's like our choice. Mm, it's our choice. That's it. Like we have to do our study, so like make efforts to become closer to the king. We have to make our own efforts. Yeah. Yep. yep. And, and that's it. And the, and the word free choice really kind of, it's our choice. Hashem wants us to have a free choice relationship with him, right? That is why Hashem created the world the way he created it. Uh, he could have created it in a way like he created the world of the angels where it's very, very clear who's in charge, who's the boss, who's the creator. <clears throat> and the angels and the souls up in heaven are in a constant state of nullification and giving them their existence over to Hashem's existence. Hashem specifically created this world with this element of free choice. And so our whole lives are kind of built up on this free choice that Hashem is, is not revealed ever, right? There's times where we can maybe feel Hashem more, feel Hashem less, but in general, Hashem hides his truth from us so that we can choose him from our own free will. 
But if we look at the year, if we look at the, the, the cycle of the year that we've discussed before, right? We said a few times already that Pesach and that whole period of Pesach and Shavuot, which is characterized by the summer months, right? The beginning of summer starts off with Pesach and Shavuot, where the sun is shining, Hashem gives, right? Hashem and it started all the way from the initial original Pesach, where the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt, where they did not deserve to be redeemed, and yet Hashem schlepped them out of Egypt, right? And he did that even though they didn't deserve it, even though they hadn't earned it, they hadn't worked for it. He revealed himself in such tremendous levels of himself <clears throat> to Jews who hadn't necessarily earned it, right? And then they go straight into um, counting of the Omer and working on themselves and preparing, so, preparing themselves to receive the Torah. But receiving the Torah is another gift, right? The Torah is the ultimate gift, the ultimate freebie, so to speak, that Hashem has given us down here. We don't deserve to know the wisdom of Hashem, right? No person can ever reach that place where he actually has earned the giving of the Torah. So the Jewish people work towards receiving the Torah. They they refine themselves during the, what we call the Sephira period, where they were counting and refining themselves every day in those 49 days between leaving Egypt and receiving the Torah. But at the end of the day, Shavuot is characterized as another holiday where we got a gift. And that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the gift of Torah, not the fact that we earned the Torah, but that Hashem gave us this tremendous gift. So that's, that's what happens during the summer months. That's what we're celebrating in those months. The gift that Hashem has given us of himself, of his Torah, of his light. And then our job really for the rest of the year is to work on internalizing those gifts and making them something part of ourself and real for ourselves. Because um, a gift, if a person isn't able to receive the gift, it's like not giving a gift at all, right? So we really need to work on ourselves to be able to truly internalize Hashem's gifts. And every single year when Hashem schleps us out of Egypt again and again and again and takes us out of our limitations and gives us the Torah again and again and again. We get the Torah again every single year. We're getting more and more light and we need to then reach that place. We need to work on that place for that next Pesach. We're ready to receive the next light. So what are the, what are, what are the winter months? The winter months are the time to really work on ourselves from our own effort without the gift, to take who we are, face ourselves, look at ourselves for who we really are and work on ourselves from our own efforts, to try and actually earn those gifts and internalize the gifts that Hashem gave us for free, so to speak, in the times of Pesach and Shavuot. So we have this cycle, and it happens every single year, where the Jew is, you know, he's working on himself, we hope, working on himself, improving slightly, taking little baby steps, steps forward, three steps back, three steps forward, three steps back. Pesach comes along, whoosh! Hashem raises him up to a level he could never have achieved on his own, and he didn't deserve. And then, what is he doing? He's trying now to be able to serve Hashem now from this new level that Hashem has raised him up to. So he's again working on himself, working on himself, which is very much characterized by the time now, by Enel and Tishrei. Hashem comes out to us now in the field because he wants us to work on ourselves without all of this revelation, without all of these gifts, so that we can truly internalize and make the light and the revelation that Hashem gave us over Pesach and Shavuot real for ourselves. Okay, so... Where is Hashem in the field? He's within ourselves. Why is he coming in a way of in the field? Specifically and not in his robes out to greet us if he cares so much about a relationship? Because relationships are two ways. And Hashem wants our initiation. Hashem wants us to come to him from our own free will, from our own efforts, so that when he does give us gifts, when he does give us his light, when he does reveal himself like on Rosh Hashanah, 
we've raised ourselves up to that place that we can actually take something in and it doesn't just go straight over our heads. Okay, does anyone have any questions or comments from chapter one? Pardon? Oh, yeah, thank you. We got, a, we got an iPhone, thank God. All right. So before we go into chapter two, as I promised Lizzie, right? Your name is Lizzie, right? Yeah. Um, we're going to speak a little bit about the 10 sphere art. So before we just jump into the 10 sphere art, which are really ideas that were taught us by Kabbalah and that Hasidus uses a lot to make the point of Hasidus, Hasidus... It's a bit of a disadvantage, which is that what Hasidus is, is the soul of the Torah. And when you speak about the soul of something, it doesn't really have much substance, right? It's hard to kind of give over soul, right? So like if you read um, the Baal Shem Tov's Torah, the Baal Shem Tov taught pure Hasidus. And it's very hard to know what to do with it. If you open it up, it's very hard to, it doesn't fit. It's almost like reading like a medrash. It's like a, you don't know what to do with it practically um, and, and just like where does it fit within your mind um, and because it's pure chassidus it's neshama what are you supposed to do with that how do you grab it right and then the Magad came along the student of the Baal Shem Tov who really made chassidus much more accessible um, he had because by basically having genius tzaddikim as students who would then go and found their own chassidus and he used Kabbalah to explain chassidus so that's where Kabbalah kind of came into the picture and um, which is almost equally as difficult because Kabbalah is very difficult to understand and most average people, not, not everyone can just understand Kabbalah. It, it depends on, you know, and, and how much Kabbalah. And then the Alter Rebbe came along and he took Hasidus and he took the Kabbalah and he said, I'm gonna, I want to teach Hasidus in a way of Chabad, that the intellectual mind can actually understand it. So Hasidus has a, a difficulty, which is that to just teach pure Hasidus, it, it's, it's hard to know, what, to know what to do with it. So Hasidus borrows and uses from, from Kabbalah and from, from the whole Taira, because Hasidus is the Taira, to try and teach us these, these points. Where was I going with this? Oh, the idea of Kabbalah. It's interesting. I just heard, I never heard this before, that the Baal Shem Tov actually said that people shouldn't learn Kabbalah. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tov, who shouldn't. shouldn't learn Kabbalah, which is very interesting. Um, there's a danger to learning Kabbalah, and we're going to be learning Kabbalah within the context of Hasidus. First of all, I, all the Kabbalah that I ever know is from Hasidus, okay? Um, Hasidus comes and explains Kabbalah. The Rebbe has a sikha that he gave over explaining what is Hasidus. It's called Inyanai Taras Hasidus, which is what is the Torah of Hasidus. Great read. I think that they have it here in English somewhere. Um, you can ask with Kumaga. Highly recommended. Where the Rebbe takes this kind of intangible concept of Hasidus and, and, and helps us to explain what it is. And there's a footnote there which say, where the Rebbe the brings many different reasons why we need Hasidus and what Hasidus adds to the world. And in the Sikha, he gave it over, but then when he edited it, he added it as a, he took it out of the, like, the main body and put it in a paragraph. And one of the explanations, one of the reasons he says we have Hasidus is to explain Kabbalah. Hasidus is there to explain Kabbalah. So I just want to say that any time I ever speak Kabbalah, right, it's I, Personally, there are people who are Kabbalists and who learn Kabbalah straight, you know. Um, I know because within the context of Hasidus, it brings Kabbalah and explains it. And explains it in a way that if you would learn Kabbalah directly, if an average person would, they wouldn't understand a word. You have to be, like, very smart. Um, but it's important before going into this whole idea of Kabbalah, have a bit of, like, a, an introduction, right, before going into the, into the ten spheres. Um, 
And that just really is that, well, it could be a bit explained that there's a big debate among Kabbalists. And the debate is, how are you supposed to pray? Because Kabbalists, they know all the names of Hashem and all the levels of Hashem. And every time that says Yud and He and Vav and He in the Siddur with the different Kudot at the bottom means different levels and different lights. And, and, so, and, and when you know these levels, you can actually tap into these levels up above. So when you're praying, there was this big debate. Are you supposed to pray like a Kabbalist? Are you supposed to pray with all of this knowledge, you know? Or are you supposed to pray like a child? Well, what does a child know about God? Oibishter, that there is a God, which is the truest place we can ever come to, to knowing God, is that we don't really know what God is, but we just know he's here, he, that he exists. And it's, there's different opinions, how are we supposed to pray, right? Hasidus tells us you need to pray like a child. Even if, you know, the, all the Kabbalah that you're going to learn from learning Hasidus or from learning Kabbalah, we need to pray like a child. We need to re- always remember and never, ever forget that the truth of Hashem can never be understood. As much as we know, that's how much we don't know, right? And the more you know, the more you have to realize that we don't know anything, right? So there's a bit of a, I wouldn't say danger in Kabbalah, but when you learn these ideas and you learn all these names and the spheres and the levels to forget that these are what's called godliness. We're not speaking about God. We're speaking about godliness. We spoke about the difference between God and godliness, right? We said that when it comes to philosophy, which also says, tries to understand what God is by looking at the world, says God created the world, right? Anything that you create, you have to have within yourself. So everything that exists in the world, God has within himself. So we can learn about God by looking at the world. Within Chakir, within philosophy, Jewish philosophy, there's God and there's creation. And there's nothing in the middle. Which basically means we can't really have a relationship with God, right? Because there's God and there's creation. Two completely, there's creator and creation and they're two completely different things. The only connection really is that one created the other. Kabbalah comes along and says, no, there's this third element. There's creator, there's creation, and there's this middle, which is, so to speak, like the blueprint of creation. There's God, there's creation, and there's godliness, okay? Uh, which we call getlichkeit in Yiddish. There's God, there's Hashem, and there's getlichkeit. Getlichkeit means godliness. Godliness is not God, but it's also not a creation, okay? So a creation, what's the definition of a creation? What do you guys think? Just read that it was created, yes, it's tangible, either physically or maybe intellectually in some way, because there are also creations like angels that we can't necessarily touch, right? But they're still creations. Creation has its own sense of identity, right? And creations are limited by time and space, into some level, some extent. Even angels take up space. What that means up above, it's different than what it means down here, but angels take up space and unlimited to time as well to some extent. So creations are limited. They are created, which means that there is something distinctly almost separate from them and their creator. And what else did we say? What did Lizzie, what did you say about creation? Tangible. Tangible. And then we have this idea, well, and then the question is, let's go all the way to God. What is God? (laughs) Right? God is God. What do we know about God? That he is not a creation, right? He did not get created by anybody else. That's what makes him God. There's nothing that comes before him. 
So either he created himself or he always was, whatever that, you know. That's, that's about it. What else we know about God? What else? Everything else we know about God is what we can see from the Torah and from creation, from the world, right? We know that God is above everything that we can ever comprehend and understand and learn and think about and that God it always existed, which makes him not a creation. Then we have this weird thing in the middle, which Kabbalah came and introduced, called godliness, that there's this middle. It's not God, it's not creation. It's godliness. And so we said that philosophy looks at the world to try and learn about God. And the moment you can't explain it or prove it from looking at the world, philosophy doesn't want to hear you. You can't prove it to me, don't talk to me, right? So there are many, many unanswered questions within philosophy, but that's, that's the whole point. It hits a ceiling because it's not, we can't know everything from looking at the world about God because God is so much more than the world. Then Kabbalah comes along and looks, says, what else do we know about God other than the world? What else do we know? We know the Torah, which we know because Hashem gave it to us, but Hashem gave us the Torah, which tells us more about God than just looking at the world, right? So you need a, the basic premise of learning Kabbalah is belief in the Torah, by the way. There's no such thing as learning about God within Kabbalah without believing in the fact that the Torah was given by God and believing in God because, because every proof of Kabbalah comes from the Torah. If we're going to learn an idea of the Orient Soth and of all these lights and all these levels and these spherot, and you say, show it to me in the world, like a philosopher would say, Where are you gonna, what are you going to show them? Torah. Torah, right? That's not in the world. That's, that's not proving it by looking at the world. So there's a premise that you have to start Kabbalah off with, which is that we believe in the Torah. Okay, so what did the, what did the Kabbalists do? Yeah. Um, there's like a discussion basically someone asked like is it possible to learn Kabbalah and like to dive like to really like dive in and understand without Kayaka as well like without living like well what do you mean by possible what do you mean is that something that like you can fully like grasp and understand and like I don't know I guess apply to your life um, without like without being I guess we could say an observant Jew yes. well you can learn Kabbalah right because anybody can open up a book and learn Kabbalah maybe even you can understand the concepts that are being brought but to truly internalize it I mean no <laughs> um, and again, also because the basic premise is where does, Allah, where does Kabbalah come from? It comes from the Torah. And what does the Torah tell us to do? The Torah tells yeah. us to live a Torah life. So you're like totally separating the two. And I mean, maybe you'll feel smart. That's the thing. Kabbalah makes you feel very smart. That's why people like Kabbalah. That's why people don't like Hasidus. Because even though Hasidus uses Kabbalah, it always says, yeah, but the truth is we don't understand anything. And that level that you just learned, there's a level beyond that that you'll never know. So people don't like Hasidus. People love Kabbalah. You learn Kabbalah, you feel so smart. You feel like, wow, I really am learning about God. And it's important. Kabbalah is important. Kabbalah is almost like that missing link because there's creator, there's God, and there's, there's creation, and they're so infinitely separate. But then Kabbalah comes along and says, wait, wait, but there's this whole middle. There's, we can show you how Hashem came from being Hashem down all the way to you right now, which means that there's a connection. Mm -hmm. 
So Kabbalah introduces this idea that we can serve God not only as a servant, as a slave, who was, so to speak, created by its master, Hashem, but also as a son, as a child, because there's a link, there's a connection. So Kabbalah adds a whole other dimension. But there is the risk there that, first of all, because you feel so smart, you know, when you learn Kabbalah, that you can learn Kabbalah for the sake of learning Kabbalah, for the sake of feeling smart, and, and, and that totally, not only is that not the point, but that's also dangerous. Because when you separate the truth of the Torah, which is living a Torah life, with Kabbalah, you're kind of saying that all these Kabbalistic terms that we're learning are God. Because you're forgetting that there's a God beyond that. So that name of God, oh, that's God, right? And that's Sephira, that's God. God, no, 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 no. And that's why I'm giving you this introduction because it's really easy to get to that place. When you start learning all these levels of godliness, but remember, these are godliness. They're not separate things from God. So again, Hakira philosophy will say they're, they are separate, but they're created by God. They're tools that Hashem uses to run the world. They're creations like angels. Kabbalah says, no, they're not creations. They're not tools. They're extensions of God, but they're not separate from God. And we must always, always keep that in mind when we're learning these ideas. And if you, and, um, and Hasidus keeps us in check with that. So that's good. Again, we're not learning pure Kabbalah. Um, anything else I wanted to say? So, so, so anything that we do learn, anything that we do say, it's godliness. And what do we say about godliness? We spoke about this in the context of the Maimar with the Neshama, that the Neshama is godliness. The Neshama is not a creation. It's actually an extension of Hashem. So there's two different things going on. There's creations with that which have their own separate sense of self and existence, which Hashem says, take that separate sense of self and give it over to me. Nullify it to me, which is called Bittel. Have you heard this concept, Bittel? I exist, God exists, I'm giving my existence over to Hashem. Then there's a concept in Hasidus called Dveikus. Has anyone had this idea of Dveikus? What does Dveikus mean? Dveikus means cleaving. What does cleaving mean? Dveikus. What does Dveikus mean? Dveikus is not bitter. Dveikus, that level, is not saying, I exist, God exists, I'm giving my existence over to God. It's saying, I never existed in the first place. I am just an extension of God. That's Dveikus. Davek, if anyone knows modern Hebrew, Devek. What's Devek? Stick. Stick, glue right we're, we're one we were never separate in the first place and that's the sphere of that's godliness godliness is constantly giving given over to Hashem but it's not a separate entity that's working constantly on giving itself over to Hashem like angels and people rather it was always Hashem it's an extension of Hashem like there's the sun and there's the rays of the sun one is completely connected to the other the rays of the sun are not the sun, but they're not distinct and separate entities from the sun, right? The moment the sun gets covered, the rays disappear. So godliness has no sense of self. These spherot have no sense of self. Spherot mean to shine. They are lights. They're, so all of these ideas, when we speak about the spherot, we're learning about lights. Emanations, extensions of God, which is what we call godliness. Not creations, but not God himself. Because God himself is plain. God himself does not have levels. God himself does not have light. God is God. God is truth and pure and plain. And there's nothing we can say about God. The moment you put a definition on Hashem, any definition, you're insulting Him. Because He's so much more than we can ever say or understand or comprehend. In prayer, we do praise Hashem, right? We have praises for Hashem. All of the praises that we have for Hashem in prayer come from the prophets, which they gave over with Ruach HaKodesh, which is Hashem saying, you, you know, here is a praise that you can use for me. Because Hashem gave us these praises. But for you to start saying, well, Hashem is this and Hashem is this, 
and Hashem is this, you're insulting him. What do you know about Hashem? We don't know anything about Hashem. So on the one hand, there's Kabbalah, where we're going to be learning lots of things about Hashem. But what are we learning about? We're learning about Hashem's light. We're learning about Hashem's blueprint for the creation of the world and for people. We're not really learning about the truth of Hashem, who he is. Because the truth of Hashem we can never understand because he's so beyond anything that we can never understand. Say again? There are times where, where it will say that a person was in a state of dvekos as well. It's a state of connection with Hashem. And it's a state of connection with Hashem, with Hashem where you were never separate in the first place. So bitol is a state that we work towards because we feel separate from Hashem. And so we're working towards feeling one with Hashem, giving our, giving our own ego and our own desires over to Hashem's, which will then make us bitol to Him, nullified to Him, so we can become almost an extension of Him. But dveikus is a level beyond that, which is I was never separate in the first place. My entire... So if you would meet Ari and Sof, if you would meet these spheres and say, Hi, Sphere, what's your name? It's going to say... So look right behind him, right? If you look at a ray of the sun or a drop in the sea and say, who are you? It's because I'm the, sea, I'm the sea. Like, I don't have an individual identity or sense of self. That's Tveikos. And when you're in that position, then you can just shine. And what you're shining is Hashem. But it's channeled in a specific direction, as we're going to discuss. So, I, there, this was not an adequate introduction, but... We'll keep talking about this throughout the year. Are we ready to like go in a little bit to the 10th sphere? Yeah? Okay. Ready? Okay. Don't ever forget this point. Because again, Kabbalah is, Kabbalah is fun. Kabbalah makes you feel really smart. <laughs> so we've got to always remember that. The smarter we feel, the less we actually know. And the truth is that a child or a simple woman in Meisharim who's never learned um, any of these, you know, big ideas are actually closer to the truth of Hashem than we'll ever get with all the Kabbalah we learn because the truth of Hashem is that he is that he's Hashem right and, and that that's that he's a Ibishter, that he's beyond us and that's what we know um, but when we learn of these ideas we can start to see a connection and that's very important so we can serve Hashem as sons right not just as servants so we can have a relationship with true emotion that's where that's where um, Kabbalah really really gives us this leg up is it true? Like, I've heard that, like, I don't know if it, um, like, basically, like, people will say, like, it, it's not good to learn Kabbalah because it can cause, like, this sense of, like, um, like, disconnection and, like, it can cause people to go crazy. I don't know if that's just, like, a thing. Oh, cause like, people to go crazy. Yeah. Like, psychologically, mentally. Yeah, psychologically, like, it Interesting. Really can, like, mess with you. Interesting. I don't know if that's, like, true or just, like, to prevent, like, anyone's it's definitely possible. It's definitely possible. I don't, I haven't personally, I mean, again, as I said, the Baal Shem Tov said, people shouldn't learn Kabbalah, right? There's the danger, as I said, of separating the concepts within Kabbalah from, the, from Hashem and from the Torah. And that, that can be very dangerous because then we start to feel very smart. And the smarter we feel, the more separate we get from Hashem. Because the more we think we know about Hashem, the less we know about Hashem, the more we're insulting Him. The idea of, of mentally going crazy, I don't know definitely possible there's also two different distinctions there's kabbalah what's called masit which is practical kabbalah taking kabbalah and actually like trying to like elicit all these different like um what would we call it reactions in the cosmos mm -hmm. right that's called 
Kabbalah Maasit. The Rebbe's, the Rebbe and the Chabad Rebbe never did Kabbalah Maasit. Anytime they did miracles, it was from their faith, it says, that their, their miracles came from their Imunah, Shutai and Hashem, not from using Kabbalah Maasit. You can make, people can make miracles from Kabbalah, and that's, there's, you know, what, you know, Jesus, he did all these crazy things. He was Jewish. How did he do these things? He did miracles. He used Kabbalah. It was definitely a dangerous side. Um, but that's also very much when we go into the realm of Kabbalah Maasit. And you're trying to like actually take these lessons that you learn and like tap into. And, and if you don't have the right faith, or if a person doesn't have the right faith, it could be, it definitely could be very dangerous as, we, as we've seen the results of that. Um, then there's this Kabbalah, which is the Kabbalah, the Torah of Kabbalah, the intellectual side of Kabbalah. If you're not trying to like go there and go outside in the moon and I don't know what. Um, people get very into Kabbalah Masi, especially in Israel, right? There are, there are teachers, there are people. I don't know so much about it, but I know my husband has students um, sometimes who come here and, and they get very into it. They, I don't know who they find, but Yerushalayim is full of people. Um, it's a bit dangerous because if you don't come to that place, it, it's actually dangerous, okay? Not a bit. Because if you're not coming to Kabbalah Masi from a place of pure emunah, and total being a total vessel and clean and pure and tzaddik, basically. Don't mean, who are you to mess with this stuff, right? Um, anyway, that's my, that's my opinion, my strong opinion on that. Um, okay, so we'll start off with an, a bit of more of an introduction to the Ten Spheres now, and then tomorrow we'll go into it, and then, uh, then we'll go back to chapter two and speak about Teshuvah. Are you learning about all these ideas of like Teshuvah and things with other teachers as well? Yeah. yeah, okay, so it's not like I'm like, okay, because I was told, like, focus on Elul, um, but, but it is important that when we're referencing Maimaran, which reference the Ten Spheres, which reference all these ideas, we have a little bit of a context of what's going on, so thanks, Lizzie, for that. Um, okay, so one more thing, sorry, I have to have lots of introductions before we go in. One more thing before we learn about the idea of the Ten Spheres is that we can never say about Hashem that he had to. Hashem doesn't have to do anything. So when we say that Hashem created the world of the ten spheres in order that there'll be a connection between Him and us, and in order that there'll be a structure and order to the world and a blueprint, etc., etc., and that will be made in the image of God, God didn't have to do this, okay? God chose to do this. So anytime we say, oh, God, you know, God limit, because God limited Himself to this blueprint, right? God chose to limit Himself. God chose to limit Himself to creating the world with these, with these ways. So that's just one more thing to keep in mind. God never had to do this, but he chose to. Now that he chose to, he's limited to those tools within the context and framework of creation. Okay, so when God created the world, he created the world with two tools. There's an opinion in Kabbalah that says three, but we're going to go with two, okay? God created the world with two tools. One tool is called koach habligvu, the power of infinity. Bligvu means no limitation, infinity. And the other is the power of infinity, of, of, of infinity, of limitation. Do you want me to write it on the board? Yes. Yeah, sure. one tool, that's tool number one. And again, he chose to use this tool, he didn't have to, 
And then number two is what's called cost, the power rule of infinity. Power of limitation. It's a unique thing about God. Usually if something is infinite, it cannot be finite, right? They always ask that famous question, can God create a stone that, can God create a stone that he cannot lift, right? Something like that, have you heard that question? Can God, can God do, make something that's impossible for him to overcome? And the answer is, well, this is a complicated question, but the answer is that God has both of these powers. He has the power of limiting himself and the power of limitation, and at the exact same time, he also has the power of infinity because God is, is everything. So he used these two tools. These go by two names in, um, they have two names of Hashem, two very famous names. The first one is called the name of Havaya, Yud and He and Vav and He, which we pronounce as Adonai, because we're not allowed to pronounce it. But if you open up your Siddur, you'll see a Yud and He and Vav and He. That is the name which we call Havaya, which is the name that represents the infinite power that Hashem used to create the world, which we can also call light, the infinite light, or the Or and Sof. There's many, many names and many levels within this. We're talking general for a moment. All right, so or or means light. Then we have the next name, which is called Elohim. Elohim represents Hashem as he uses his affinity, limitation, to rule and create the world. Elohim literally means Elokah. What's Elokah? Elohim is plural, by the way. It's the only name of Hashem that's plural. It's plural for Elokah. The Kanan's like the master. Um, it's plural because within this infinity, within limitation, there is the ability to have levels and have multitudes. When we speak about infinity, something that's infinite is one, it's plain. But when you have levels, then it's not infinite. You have one, two, three, you're going from infinite to finite. Elohim is plural, it's the only name of Hashem that's plural because we're speaking about a, the tool that Hashem uses to create the world of, of, of limitation. And Elohim is also the gematria of Hateva. So you want to know what Hateva means? The nature. Nature. So nature, which is pure limitation, right? Nature, the definition almost, the epitome of what nature is, is limitation. Nature is limited to the rules of nature. Comes from this name of Elohim. And one more thing we'll say about Elohim is Canaan. What does Canaan mean? Vessels. Containers which by definition of container has to be limited because every container can only contain a limited amount. It's a vessel for light, okay? So Hashem created the world with light and vessels, infinity, infinity, the name of Havaya, the name of Elohim. And that makes up, these two tools make up the ten spheroids. Because a sephira, which means a light, so a sphere, a sphere ends with my Right? Sphera means a light. The ten spherot, every single one of them, and we'll discuss a little bit, a little bit, a little bit about each one tomorrow, and then we'll um, we'll finish with that. But every light is made up of these two tools, these two powers: infinity, meaning infinity; a light, meaning a vessel. So every sphera is actually a vessel where light is coming into. Okay, coming into the vessel. 
That's what a sphere is. A sphere is these two powers, these two tools that Hashem uses, that Hashem chose to use to create the world, to create creation, for the blueprint of the world. Lights coming into vessels. Infinite light coming into vessels. And then the question is, are the vessels infinite or not? It depends what world we're talking about. We'll talk about the four worlds. But within the, blue, within the initial creation of spherot, infinite light coming into vessels that are also infinite, which, will, which, are, which, have, which, have, which channel the light. Okay. So spherot, it's not a literal definition, but it can also mean a channel. It takes Hashem's infinite light that is plain and has no levels, and it directs it in a certain way that now it's either on the right side or it's on the left side or it's on the middle, which has different character, character traits, I guess you can say. And that's why we also can call them sometimes the intellectual and emotional faculties because it's directing this light into different vessels, into different channels. So that Hashem's light, which is plain and simple and infinite, can come down into levels. We'll finish with that for today. We'll continue tomorrow. Does anyone have questions? Yes. This, that's the final man. Kalim. Any questions or comments? You good? So if someone says, what's a sphera? A sphera is light coming into a vessel. Hashem's infinite light coming into a vessel, being contained in some way. Um, and it's the two tools that Hashem uses to create the world. His power of infinity and his power of limitation. Okay?